Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I was talking to my dad the other day, and I mentioned that I had tweaked my knee recently. Wasn't that big a deal, but we'd already talked about sports and I couldn't think of anything else to say. Plus, I figured, hey, he's old. Maybe we can bond about this. You know, like, ah, knees, am I fucking right? They're the worst. Why can't I just get a second set of ankles up there like a goddamn giraffe, huh? Anyway, my conversational ploy kind of backfired because instead of it sparking a discussion about how cool giraffes are, it was like, well, what does your doctor say? And I had to be like, well, he says the same thing he says every time. Mr. Hubbard, I regret to inform you that I don't exist. You haven't had medical insurance in over 20 years. And my dad didn't think that was very funny. And neither do I. America, am I right? Anyway, we've got a really good show for you today. We're going to be wrapping up our coverage of the A Lonely Place of Dying storyline, and we have an amazing guest for it. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Batman, number 442, December, 1989. A Lonely Place of Dying, Chapter 5. Rebirth. Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Drotted by Jim Aparo. Inkted by Mike DiCarlo. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Dan Raspler and Denny O'Neill. New Titan Roll Call! Nightwing! And that's it for Titans, unless you count Robin, the Tim Drake one, who does eventually join a version of the Teen Titans, and Batman, who is never a Titan, but a Titan does become Batman for a while. Also, Alfred who was never a titan, nor as near as I can tell a teen, but fuck it, he's a titan of household management. And enabling. Previously in the New Titans tie-in issues of A Lonely Place of Dying. The Titans took a complicated phone message for Nightwing, aka Dick Grayson, while the acrobatic adventurer was off buying a circus. Also, there was a murder at that circus because it was a circus. Previously in Batman. Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, has been acting like an out-of-control asshole ever since the Joker murdered his young protege, Jason Todd, a.k.a. Robin too. The billionaire bat enthusiast has been rushing from one perilous situation to another without taking any time to rest in between or do research which might mitigate the physical danger to his increasingly battered body. The caped crusader's closest confidant, Alfred Pennyworth, expressed his concern, but a belligerent Batman brushed off the long-suffering butler's advice and embarked on a campaign to capture Two-Face, a.k.a. Harvey Dent a disfigured former DA whose devotion to dualism was often his undoing. Alfred wasn't the only one who took note of Batman's self-destructive behavior. A young teen named Tim Drake had been following Batman for several weeks and surreptitiously photographing his exploits. 
The precocious Shutterbug had figured out both Batman and Nightwing's secret identities years ago, after recognizing Dick's distinctive acrobatic moves from his days with the Flying Grayson's Trapeze Act. Since coming to this realization, Tim had been closely following Bruce and Dick's adventures, and was increasingly uneasy with Batman's recent course of action. Tim tracked down Dick and shared both his photographs and his concerns with the newly minted circus mogul. Dick confided that he too was worried about his former mentor's mindset. He took Tim to stately Wayne Manor so that they could confront Bruce together, but when they arrived they found that the embattled bat aficionado in question was still engaged in his obsessive pursuit of Two-Face and hadn't been home in quite some time. Tim proposed that since Batman had seemed better adjusted when Robin was his sidekick, Dick should go back to being Robin. For some reason, Dick didn't seem too keen on the idea of reverting to his adolescence and resuming his role as a sidekick, but he agreed to track down Bruce and offer his assistance as Nightwing. Dick also took Tim down to the Batcave, where he and Alfred took turns looking significantly at Jason Todd's old Robin costume, then looking at Tim, and then going, Huh? Huh? When Tim failed to pick up on these subtle hints, Dick donned his Nightwing duds and went off to find his old mentor. After receiving a cryptic message that Bruce had left for him with the Titans, Dick soon located Batman outside a dilapidated house on 4th Street. Both crime fighters agreed that A, the house was probably a trap set by Two-Face, and that 2, they should definitely walk into said trap. Nightwing suggested that they should walk into the trap cautiously. Batman resented Dick thinking he was allowed to have an opinion on the matter and smashed through the window, ordering the younger adventurer to go around to the back. When the dynamic duo got inside, they were surprised to find that all of the furniture was glued to the ceiling. While our heroes tried to puzzle out why Two-Face was trying to recreate a Lionel Richie video, the villain in question showed up and set off a bomb. The building collapsed on the costumed adventurers, trapping them under huge piles of rubble. Gadzooks! Is this the end of the Caped Crusaders? Will Tim Drake pick up on Dick and Alfred's hints and finally put on the Robin costume? And how exactly does gluing furniture to the ceiling of a house relate to Harvey Dent's obsession with the number two? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, no, yes, and at first I thought it didn't. But then I realized that Dancing on the Ceiling is the first song on Lionel Richie's third solo album, and three minus one is two. Pretty sneaky, Harv. Tim and Alfred are hanging out in the Batcave waiting for Bruce and Dick to get home. They've been there for a while now and are starting to get pretty worried. See, just before Two-Face blew up the house they were in, Dick turned on a little tracking device in his costume that told the Batcave where he was, and Alfred figures that's probably a sign that something went wrong. Tim is like, isn't there someone we could call who could check on them? Alfred throws his jacket over Bruce's Bat Rolodex, which lists the phone numbers of all of the superheroes who owe Batman a favor, and is like, uh, no? What a shame. As if to illustrate that when you work for a guy who dresses up like a giant bat, you don't necessarily place a high premium on subtlety, Alfred gets Jason Todd's old Robin costume out of its display case, holds it up in front of him, and is like, 
It does seem like someone should put on a costume and come to Master Bruce's aid, but alas, we two are the only ones who know of his plight, and I am far too old to wear this uniform. Oh well, guess we'll just have to ignore what is clearly a distress signal and hope for the best. Tim is like, wait a minute, I just had an idea. I could put on the Robin costume and come to their rescue. Alfred is like, What? Why, that never even occurred to me. But no, no, it's far too dangerous. You don't really want to do something so clever and brave and heroic, do you? Tim is like, Well, maybe. Alfred is like, Okay, you convinced me. Come on, I'll drive. Back at the formerly upside-down, now-just-mostly-exploded house on 4th Street, Harvey Dent looks down at Batman and Nightwing, who are unconscious and partially covered in rubble, and gloats at what a good, good evil villain he is. The bifurcated bad guy sets even more explosives in the remaining rafters above the heroes, then flips a coin to see whether he's going to detonate those charges and double-super-explode the house. You know... I get that the coin toss thing is a big part of his whole deal, but it seems to me that the time to flip the coin would be before setting up all the bombs. Just seems like a shame to do all that prep work if you're just going to walk away. It ends up being a moot point, I guess, because the coin lands double super explodey side up. Fortunately, while Harvey is flipping the coin, Batman wakes up and has just enough time to position a fallen crossbeam in such a way that it just might shield him and Dick from the brunt of the explosion. Two-Face waxes nostalgic for a minute about how nice the house he's about to double blow up is and how many connections to the number two it has. Then he pushes the button on his detonator and the parts of the house that were still standing tumble down upon our helpless heroes burying them under an even bigger pile of detritus than the one they were already buried under. Bummer. Alfred and Tim pull up in Bruce's limo just in time to witness the devastation that Two Faces wrought. Resplendent in his borrowed Robin attire, Tim leaps from the car and punches Harvey right in the face. Or possibly faces. Hooray! Or not so hooray. Because after being momentarily stunned, Harvey is like, Robin, huh? I heard you were dead. Let's see if we can make that rumor a reality. And he hits Tim in the face with a brick. Ouch. Turns out Tim doesn't much care for being hit in the face with a brick. He takes a second to reflect on that. Harvey takes advantage of the distraction and picks up a crowbar to move in for the kill. Oof. I'm not much of a bat historian, but even I know that Robins don't have a great track record against crowbars. Fortunately, butlers seem to fare a little bit better. Alfred hurls himself at Two-Face, providing Tim the opportunity to parry the crowbar blow with a nearby piece of masonry and punch out the murderous former litigator. Hooray! Tim tells Alfred to keep an eye on Harvey and starts poking around the exploded house to see if he can find some way to get to Dick and Bruce. After a few minutes, he finds the remains of what was once a coal chute, he shimmies through the narrow ingress and is delighted to find that the heroes are still alive. Tim helps extricate his idols from their respective piles of rubble. At first, Batman is grateful, but when they get outside and he sees the outfit that Tim is wearing, he gets super pissed off and is like, Fucking seriously? Tim is like, No, let me explain. See, 
I know all your secrets and I'm your biggest fan, but I was worried that you were too messed up in the head. So what I did see is I stalked you for a while and then I dressed up in your dead adopted son's old clothes so that I could help you be sane again. Okay, so as I'm saying that out loud, I can see that it doesn't sound great. Batman is like, what the fuck? Dick is like, you know, actually, if you hang out with Raven, that makes perfect sense. Impersonating dead loved ones for allegedly therapeutic reasons is kind of her go-to move. You'd be surprised at how often it works. Alfred is like, and he did capture Two-Face for you. Who, incidentally, I now realize must have wandered off while I was supposed to be watching him. Oops. Dick is like, and he's a really good detective, too. He was able to figure out my secret identity, despite the fact that we took almost no steps to conceal it. Batman is like, really? Well, okay, that is impressive. But at least one boy has died while wearing that costume, and I don't want to risk another one. Tim is like, but I promise I'll... Wait, at least one? Batman is like, yeah, there was this kid named Lance, but that was a Bob Haney story, and I'm not sure if those count or not. Tim is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Look, the point is, you're being really reckless lately. If you had to worry about me getting killed, you'd probably be a lot safer. Besides, you know how Batman and Superman are icons that citizens look up to and criminals fear? Well, so is Robin. And it's important that that symbol doesn't just go away. Batman is like, that's ridiculous. Yes, of course Batman is an important symbol, but Robin... He suddenly remembers that Dick Grayson, who was the original Robin, is standing right next to him. Is also an important symbol, is definitely what I was going to say. Look, we can talk about this later, but right now I've got to track down Two-Face. He could be anywhere. Do you have any idea how many locations that are vaguely related to even numbers there are in this city? Tim is like, well, maybe I can help with that. I planted a tracking device on Harvey after I knocked him out. Batman is like, oh, and I suppose you won't tell me where he is unless we let you come along, is that it? Tim is like, oh gosh no, I'd really like to come with you guys, and if I do, I'll follow all your orders. But if you say I have to stay here, I will. I'll be sad, but I'll do it. Batman is like, hmm. Oh, all right. I guess you can have a little child endangerment. As a treat. But just this once. Batman, Nightwing, and the kid who isn't exactly Robin yet, but isn't exactly not Robin, all pile into the Batmobile. The three costumed crime fighters follow the tracking signal to... <sighs> The Gemini Auto Wrecking Yard. Seriously, Gotham? Do you want two faces? Because naming businesses like that is how you get two faces. Also, probably best to avoid names that involve coins, too. Or clowns. Or cats. Or flightless waterfowl. You know, maybe it's better if you just don't open a business in Gotham. Batman Parks then turns to Tim and is like, Wait in the car. Tim is like, Anything you say, sir. Just happy to be here. Nightwing and Batman start searching the junkyard. Harvey is sitting in a crane, listening to an old-timey radio that his psychosis has been talking to him through for the past several issues. He uses a wrecking ball to knock a stack of cars onto the Batmobile. Well, shit. There goes another Robin. 
Batman's pretty freaked out, but it turns out that Tim protected himself by jumping out of the car and hiding under it at the last minute. Bruce is pretty impressed with the kid's reflexes and problem-solving, but orders him to stay behind as he and Dick charge the crane Harvey was hiding in. Only Harvey isn't in the crane anymore. The two-toned terrorist has hopped into a bulldozer which he uses to try to run down all three heroes. Dick does some acrobat stuff and manages to knock Harvey off the bulldozer, but then Harvey grabs a loose headlight or something and whacks Dick in the face with it. The dualism-obsessed do-batter pauses to flip a coin to see whether or not to murder Nightwing, but Batman snatches the coin out of the air and punches the shit out of Harvey. Hooray! It's not entirely clear whether they turn the defeated Dent over to the police, take him to Arkham Asylum, or just let him wander off again, but it kind of amounts to the same thing either way. It's a happy ending, and he won't be doing any more crime until he decides to. Later that night at Wayne Manor, Bruce, Tim, Dick, and Alfred celebrate their success. Bruce is like, Okay, Tim, here's the deal. I don't want you to be Robin. Tim is like, Okay. Bruce is like, All right, fine, you convinced me. You can be Robin. Tim is like, Oh, neat. Thank you. I'll do my best to be a good Robin. Bruce is like, Whoa, who said anything about you being Robin? Tim is like, uh, you just did? Bruce is like, well, we'll see. Maybe. Meanwhile, in a hospital bed in an undisclosed location, a manic, shadowy figure speaks into some kind of a ham radio thingy. So, remember how I said Harvey Dent's psychosis was talking to him through an old-timey radio? Well, it turns out that this guy was the real mastermind. He was messing with Harvey's head and telling him what to do. It's not entirely clear who this mysterious stranger could possibly be, but whoever it is, they're wearing thick white pancake makeup, bright red lipstick, have green hair, and like to laugh maniacally. So... Scarecrow? Yeah, it's probably the Scarecrow. Fucking Scarecrow. The End And my good-for-many-things brother Cory was perhaps inspired by Harvey Dent recently and decided to embark on a life of coin-based crime. So he's off shopping at Cross Colors to get his wardrobe right before he goes off to do that. Fortunately, in his stead, we are joined by Sarah Century. Sarah is a brilliant and delightful writer, podcaster, artist, Rapid aficionado, uh, <laughs> yeah. any, I, and I'm sure I'm missing like four or five other things. You, you wear a lot of metaphoric hats and possibly some actual hats. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I don't have any hats, actually, but I do wear a lot of metaphorical hats. You are very correct. And I also am very surprised sometimes by the skills that I randomly have. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I love the last episode. I don't remember what number it was, but anybody who is listening only to recent episodes, go back and listen to our Valkyrie episode because I was on this podcast one time before and it was one of my like just most beloved appearances I've ever done on a podcast for me. I don't know how other people felt about it. 
Oh, I very much felt similarly. Yes, I would absolutely <laughs> recommend just doing a Google search for Tighten Up the Defense and Sarah Century and finding that episode because it's one of my favorite episodes that we've done. Did a little bit of light dragging of Roy Thomas, which went on to be a theme in my life. <laughs> oh, excellent. I'm glad I could play some small part in that. So, Sarah, we're covering a Batman comic book today. As I've discussed on recent episodes, Despite being a lifelong comic book reader, I really haven't read all that many Batman comics. Mm. Um, I believe I mentioned to Elena, I've inadvertently read a lot of Batman because in the DC universe, he's like racism or sugar. He's just in everything, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, very much the Wolverine of the DC universe. Right. But uh, I'm curious as to what your history with the character Batman is. I think that Batman is a really great character. I have been reading his comics definitely since I was a kid. I was first into X-Men comics, but I got into Batman comics because of the availability. I was a kid who lived in rural Missouri, and I was bored out of my mind all of the time, of course, because it was a boring place to live. I was from Nashville and had moved to a rural place, which was just kind of rough for me. And so I always wanted to know more, see more, get more culture. And, you know, really all that we had was there was a really small public library. And then the gas stations in my town would occasionally carry comic books, but it was very, very spotty, right? Like mm -hmm. You would never get the special issues. You would never get like the gatefold cover issues or anything like that. But you would sometimes get you know, regular X-Men comics, and then, of course, Batman. So I believe that around the time that I started reading comics was whenever Kelly Jones and Doug Mensch were on the book. That was, I don't remember the issue numbers, but it was back when Batman was just kind of this creepy weirdo, and all of the people that he was coming up against, it was like Etrigan, Swamp Thing, you know, all of these strange characters, and most of the comics ended with him just being sad. It was very... Robert Pattinson, you know, like it was kind of what has come back into the zeitgeist today, I think. But there was a whole break after that where Batman was just full out a cop, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was out for a long time. And I'm very much this person who, you know, like everybody has different takes on Batman. There's always going to be new Batman stories. I think that he's a really fun character because of that. I appreciate the fact that People really do go all over the place with him. I think that DC, as a super family-friendly corporation, you know, whatever that even means, sometimes can hold Batman back, you know? After Doug Mensch, it was lots of Chuck Dixon and stuff like that. So there was a lot of right-wing-ish kind of stuff in his books. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing, is, is that I feel that everybody has a different favorite Batman or a different Batman that they actually enjoy. I was reading, like, watching the animated series a lot as a kid. So, basically, I've been around this character just as long as anybody else has. I've read a ton of his comic books. One of my favorite activities is whenever I'm sleepy and I need to fall asleep, but my brain is going off <laughs> on all cylinders, I will read the really old issues of Detective Comics or Batman on DC Infinite. So I'm always just kind of reading through and they're so silly and really weird to read right before you fall asleep because you're like, was that a dream or did <laughs> that actually happen in a comic? And you look back and you're like, nope, that actually happened in a comic for sure. 
I think he's a really fun character, basically, I guess is the roundup of that. Gotcha. You mentioned that everybody has a favorite Batman. I think my favorite version of Batman is probably the Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold Batman from what I have read. Oh, yeah. It's so weird and so fun. And he's basically like Dean Martin Batman almost in that he's like totally square but in a way that he thinks he's totally hip and kind of a throwback <laughs> and it's like oh you kids think you know how to fight crime well it's ring-a-ding-ding for these bozos <laughs> i love that too i think that he's so fun and i was gonna say that that tracks for you because just <laughs> only from listening to your podcast and the, like the one or two conversations we've had i would guess that bob haney batman would be your favorite <laughs> yeah I am very much the creature that I present myself as. He's fun. I love those Brave and the Bold. They're neat. Who's your favorite Batman? Mm, It's hard to say in some ways. I haven't revisited the Doug Minch stuff, but in my mind, I have this very clear image of the Batman that I was reading as a kid, and I loved it. Also, there's still really good takes on Batman all of the time. Like, I just got finished... Reading, I believe that her run is just now coming to a close, but Mariko Tamaki on Detective Comics, I think, has been a really underrated run because it was kind of coming off of Tenyon's Batman, which also is good. But I think that there was just kind of this once Tenyon was gone, people were like, and then Batman comics stopped being made (laughs) or something. (laughs) And it's like, that's fair because that does happen a lot of the time with these big like creators who are really impactful on the book. I'm sure that the same thing happened whenever Tom King left the franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I really enjoyed Mariko Tamaki's recent work on it. I think that the best Batmans are yet to come, I guess. That's good to hear. Do you have, because I've mostly, when I have dipped in, other than the Brave and the Bold stuff, it's just been to read, like, the Batman stories that growing up when I did, I was told, these are the important ones. These are the ones you need to read. <laughs> yeah. Um, And I haven't liked them all but I understood why they were the important ones, at least. Of those stories, do you have a favorite and a least favorite? Uh, Cataclysm, I believe, is the one where the earthquake happens. Is that right? I think so. And then it's No Man's Land, right? That Mm -hmm. was around the time whenever I was buying Bat books seriously. So as I said, I really haven't revisited it. I'm sure that a lot of like the Chuck Dixon politics would probably be off-putting for me at this point. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that they probably were when I was a kid, too. But it was more of an ensemble thing, right? That was kind of what always works the best with Batman is the idea that he's not just one person, which I think we'll talk about a lot in this episode. But basically just the fact that there's a lot of people working around him. And I think that Cataclysm did a really good job of we're in the worst thing that could happen. You know, this is the worst. The town has been attacked. There's earthquake. Not only that, but they get the whole rest of the country is like, you are on your own, which is such a interesting plot beat for Gotham, I guess. So I thought all of that was really interesting. And once again, I'm not 100% if it holds up, but I would say that that was one of my favorite stories. And I would say my least favorite stories, I don't know, I actually do like year one. I like a lot of things, but then when Frank Miller ever comes back to the franchise, I think that has to be one of my like least favorites because it's always yeah. um, when he did Batman and Robin and stuff like that. I was like, oh. Ugh, rough. That was that the one he did with Jim Lee where I, yeah. I think I dipped in for one issue and was like, 
this is hilarious. Oh, wait, this isn't supposed to be hilarious. This isn't, it's it's hilarious. It's not supposed to be hilarious. And then, like, it's one of those things where at first you're chuckling and then you start to be like, I'm going to go, like, beat this guy up. (laughs) Yeah. You start getting, like, mad whenever you're reading it. Sometimes I'm, like, cracking up just like, I cannot believe this guy. Like, he really is coasting (laughs) off of The Dark Knight Returns for his whole career or whatever. Then there's times whenever I'm just like, Yo, what's this about, though? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You start to get, like, kind of annoyed. Yeah, I didn't like that. There's a lot of runs on Batman, actually, that I think are really rough. I've been doing Batman and the Outcasters. There's a podcast that's called that. And so Batman and the Outsiders, the old comics, I think that those are really fun. But again, they work because it's an ensemble piece. All of the Mm -hmm. Outsiders are really fun. And Batman can be fun in that group. I think that that's why I like it so much is is that he actually kind of loosens up with the Outsiders, which he never really does with the Justice League. And I think that that's really fun. But then later, Chuck Dixon came in for Batman and the Outsiders 2007 series, and it was pretty rough. So (laughs) I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, even things that I like can take a turn like really fast in the Batman universe. Yeah. And... Chuck Dixon, especially 2007 Chuck Dixon, taken a Ooh. lot of hard rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like you could almost ignore it in certain parts, and then it got to a place. And I was a kid, you know, like by 2007, I was probably like 20 something, early 20s, 24. So I guess not a kid then. But I had also <laughs> stopped reading superhero comics by 2007 because I, I was going through Countdown, and Countdown broke me from superhero comics. So. That was one of the periods that I dipped out for, too. How could you not? <laughs> it was awful. Yeah, and it was like punishing me for liking 52, which came Serious! That's what it reads like. They're just like, oh yeah, you liked this idea? What if it's excruciating? And relentless, because it was every week. Every week. And that was the thing. It was such a weird follow-up to 52, which has its flaws, but Mm -hmm. is still, I would say, overall pretty good, you know? Like, I think a solid comic, one that I have revisited and been like, you know, like there's parts that I don't love, but I would say overall, this is a pretty good comic. And then you roll into (laughs) Countdown. And it's, I just revisited this because I wrote an article, which I'm sure actually will be up by the time this goes live for Comic Book Herald that was who watched the Watchmen. And it's just about people who took inspiration from Watchmen. And the first one I wrote was Legion of Superheroes five years later, which was, I think, amazing. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for one that I don't like as much, but I'm going to revisit it. And I hope that I have a more fair and kinder view of it, you know, today. And I started with Countdown and I hated rereading it so much more than I hated reading it the first time, which was wild because (laughs) I was like, I hated this comic. And then I'm like, no, I'm mad. (laughs) Like this, this comic is so sexist. It's so offensive. It goes off. And yeah, Paul Dini, you know, like he was the writer of that, but he also did some of my favorite Batman stories for the animated series and beyond. So it was an interesting time for sure, where you're like, 2007 was rough at DC. Not only was there a, all of the things that we know about now, right, with the creeper editorial, everything, but there was definitely this real hardcore edgelord vibe that I think like Jeff Johns and like a few others had kind of brought along with them and uh, really ran with, you know? Yeah. And Countdown is almost like the pinnacle achievement of that. <laughs> 
what was your background with Tim Drake as a character? I kind of just remember him being around and it would have been, I would have started reading the Robin series, but I don't know at what point. It certainly was not in the beginning of the series. It would have been much later on. So I remember just kind of, you know, I'm picking up Nightwing, I'm picking up Batman, so I'm going to pick up Robin too if it's on the stands. And it was, I believe, around the time that the spoiler comes in. Obviously, Stephanie Brown has been treated terribly by this company, but I Mm -hmm. think too that Stephanie Brown is one of their strongest characters. They're doing really great with her in Batgirls right now with Cass Kane and Barbara Gordon. So if anybody (laughs) like me loved Stephanie Brown and then was like, wow, I can't handle what you write this character going through. I think that now is a good time for you to come back to the comics because Batgirls by Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad is really good. But I think more I loved just that at that time, his dad knew what was going on. Like his dad, because one of the long running plots was, is that his dad didn't know he was Robin, Mm -hmm. but he found out he was a little bit more disillusioned with Batman. I think there was a lot of things that were going on in his private life. He was letting Robin slip a little bit, but his private life and his school life were slipping too. That was a fun time for me just because it is hard to stay on top of multiple things. And I think when you're a teenager, adults really expect you to be able to juggle five or six different selves in a way. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the person that you're supposed to be when we visit your grandma. This is the person (laughs) you're supposed to be, you know, at school. This is the person you're supposed to be in these five different groups. You have to succeed at all of them, you know, all of that. I feel like that pressure really showed with this character. And... That's why I think I liked him as much as I did. So now that we've got your background on these characters, let's talk about this issue. What did you think of this issue? This is a really good comic, I think. I love this story, too, because when you were asking, so what do you think about, you know, what's one of your favorite famous Batman stories? I think that this has to rate, and I'm of varying opinion on (laughs) some of the creators but i'm also just like i think that this is everybody just batting at their very best like i think that the writing is really solid the whole story is interesting i loved two-face the build-up that we had in the previous issues i think was really cool because it was marv wolfman putting them next to each other batman and two-face being Mm -hmm. this two sides of the same coin kind of situation I think Two-Face sometimes gets dropped. Like, you know, people are just like, oh, he's the two guy, you know, or whatever. And so people kind of forget this depth of their relationship with each other. And I think that whenever they explore that more, it's always for the benefit. But this issue, it's kind of Tim Drake being awesome because in the previous issues, he was just like, Dick, you need to go back to being Robin, right? We need you to Mm -hmm. be Robin. And in this one, you can see that he's very much come into the idea that he's going to be Robin from page one. I loved it. I thought that that was really great. And I love that we're seeing this side of Bruce that so begrudgingly, but also obviously is admitting that he actually needs help, you know? Yeah, I really liked this issue, too. I think that honestly, the quality of this issue forgives some of the issues that I had with the previous issues. God, I'm using the word issue a lot. (laughs) It happens with comics, right? (laughs) But in this run, like, I think there were pacing issues throughout it. I think the fact that it was a Teen Titans tie-in was very much tacked on, and you could probably 
read the story pretty well without reading the Teen Titans issues of it. I was thinking about that, too, whenever I was reading through the story. Like, I'm never going to be mad that we got a bottle episode that takes place at the circus, especially with circus murders. I'm a big fan <laughs> of circus murder. Oh, totally. Yeah. They're a comic book staple. <laughs> They're like a fiction staple. Like, I was going through all of my favorite TV shows that have had murders that happened at the circus, and I was like, oh, shit, there's a lot of them. Like, Murder, She Wrote, <laughs> Perry Mason, Magnum P.I. Like, what's the circus even doing in Hawaii? No, it pops up everywhere. I was reading a Legion of Superheroes comic from, like, the 70s and was just circus murder in space <laughs> 2,000 years from now. <laughs> uh, some things never change. <laughs> It's kind of comforting in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but as much as I liked that issue, I felt like it did slow down the momentum of the story arc a little bit. Uh-huh. And the Titans issues are the ones, too, where you're like, okay, Tim, we get it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like with Tim Drake, Marf Wolfman is almost trying to course correct from danny fucking chase and the way he had been writing jason todd where he's like oh people don't like a sassy smart aleck know-it-all i know so instead of making him a character that i think kids will like i'm going to make him a kid that i like who is super obedient and does whatever he's told and is also perfect in every way that way and i think it's a slight <laughs> overcorrection in this issue but the character ends up evening out in a way that i really appreciate yeah, for sure. And I mean, Danny Chase, right? Like, oh, I wanted to like that character <laughs> so much because I had heard nothing but how horrible he was. And yep. I was like, no, I'm going to be the guy who likes this guy. That I'm nobody going to likes. that for this little kid with freckles. And then really within the first like few pages of his first appearance, I was like, no, fuck this cousin Oliver motherfucker. I yeah. hate this kid. Insufferable. One of those kids where if you meet a kid like that in real life, all you can do is walk away every time mm -hmm. they start trying to drag you is just be like, I'm the grown up. I'm sorry that makes you mad. <laughs> like, I gotta go. When I was a little kid, my mom was getting her doctorate and she was doing research in classrooms. And I ended up going to the school that she had been doing research in and i mentioned one of the other kids in the school and just watching her and my stepdad just roll their eyes at being like oh that fucking asshole <laughs> <laughs> was really gratifying for me as a kid yeah you're just like hopefully that evens out with danny chase it's never going to even out <laughs> Now, the only times when I have liked him or even wanted to go back to defending him even slightly is when Marv Wolfman has decided, oh, fine, I don't like him anymore either. And I was like, yeah. well, you don't get to do that. You have to like him. You're the one who made us all sit through this guy. <laughs> yeah, you're his dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Danny Chase was terrible. So I think, too, that Tim Drake can't help but be likable comparatively. I love, though, that there, as you say, he evens out as time goes on, maybe a little bit too much of a course correct. Absolutely agree. I think that something that does show up in this issue that really becomes a defining trait for Tim is his diplomatic abilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that even when he's at his worst, every now and again, they try to do edgy Tim Drake. <laughs> <laughs> That's and just it's fine. silly. Yeah, it's fine. Do what you need to do. Get it out, I guess. Mm -hmm. But 
the one that I like the best is the one who is really able to meet people in the same way that Dick Grayson often can, but Dick Grayson, I think, has more of a temper than mm-hmm. Tim does. And so that's why sometimes he's just the super friendly, smiling guy. And it's, yes, absolutely. But I think that he has a temper underneath that. We see that a lot through his Titans era, especially. But with Tim, as much as he does have a temper, he's really, really good at making a bunch of different people understand what he's saying and meeting everybody where they're at. And I think that that he he super does here <laughs> in a way that shows that's one of his biggest skills. We all know that he's a genius. He's really good at detective work, all of this, maybe more of a brain than an action guy for the most part in his early days. But throughout his existence, he's always been that diplomatic. He is really great. I like that part of him. Well, and it makes so much more sense to have that be his go-to moves as a teen sidekick character. Like, mm-hmm. it makes it that much less disturbing that Batman is throwing another kid into the octagon. If, yeah. If he's like, no, th- think your way out of this and try to avoid combat as much as you can, rather than, yeah, sure, go fight Killer Croc, whatever. Totally, yeah. It does make a lot more sense. I wish that they even leaned more into it, because I don't think that there's even really need for him today to be super, super, you know, action guy. I'm not saying he can't take care of himself. Obviously, every Robin can. But I also think that what makes him stand out and what makes him so unique was a lot of the ways that he had this really strong friendship with Barbara, right? I Mm -hmm. loved their interactions going forward. So that was kind of the stuff that I liked about him in this issue was just that it really does foreshadow this hyper-respectful you know, trying to make sure everybody is taken care of. And, you know, the first four issues of this, he was just on that one beat of, but Dick, you have to be Robin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then this issue, you see him be like, actually, I have to do something because the adults have gotten themselves in a pickle, to say the least. After Alfred does the very, very half-hearted, after acknowledging in early issues, no, we're trying to manipulate you into being Robin. That's clearly what Dick is doing, and I'm doing it too. And then at the beginning of this issue, Tim is like, I think I need to be Robin. Alfred does the very half-hearted, no, don't. You know what happened to the last one, and Tim's like, yeah, I do. (laughs) That's why I didn't super jump into it, you know? Like, I actually do know what happened. Okay, well, if you insist, then I'll give you a ride. (laughs) Yeah, I'll drop you off. (laughs) There's so much of this where the whole lead-in, because he talks about seeing Dick's parents die, too, and you're just Mm -hmm. like... The whole lead-in of this is just this person died, this person died, this person died. They all died violently. (laughs) This is very gruesome. And then, you know, as old as he is, I think he's probably, what, like 14 in this or something? I think Um, 13, he says, yeah. Yeah, so young. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, he's basically like, for some reason they know Superman, but Superman's not on this. You know, for some (laughs) reason they know all of these adults, but I'm the one that (laughs) has to act. So, yeah, if you go too deep on it, you're going to come up with ethical issues (laughs) i don't think you have to go that deep they're pretty near the surface but yeah that being said i do like the idea you mentioned it earlier of batman being an ensemble book and they really did drive the point home earlier in this arc 
that what separates Batman from Two-Face is his sense of community. Mm-hmm. In the same issue that it was like, they're like two sides of a coin, which, okay, no, they're not, because each of them is two sides of a coin, so they're four yeah. sides of two dissimilar coins. Yeah. But You can't put that in like a quippy little word bubble, though, so. Fair enough. <laughs> but even when that is at its like peak, that is what makes Batman be like, no, I need to reach out for help. And Harvey Dent is like, no, I need to double down and give it to my psychosis. And it's like, okay. I like that concept, and I like Batman needing that support group. Yeah, I do too. I think that that's maybe why this is such a good story overall, right? Because, yeah, there's definitely issues. There's super pacing issues, as you say. And you super don't need <laughs> to read the Titans part of this. Although, I mean, it's fun. Yeah. But that's kind of the thing is, is that when they killed Jason... It was this idea that everybody decided that Batman just didn't need a Robin. And we saw that that doesn't work, you know, in the weeks after Jason's death. We see that mm -hmm. he does need Robin. He needs people around him. He has always needed people around him. You see him in his early days with Alfred and things get pretty scary. But it's like, even if you're doing something like the newest Batman movie, he always needs people. He has Alfred, he has Gordon, he has <laughs> Selena, you know, as long as Selena can tolerate him, she is there. But I think that there is something to be said for that, because even as he's reaching out, Robin is the person who is his partner, like his true partner, in that they team up, they go out, they do this stuff together, they talk about it first, you know. And I think that that is something that you can never, I don't want to watch Xena without Gabrielle, you know, <laughs> like gotcha. I want to watch, I want to watch the team up. That's a very different relationship. Hercules and Aeolus, you know, like whatever you have all kinds of characters that are like that Superman. And once again, different relationship, but I don't want to read Superman if Lois Lane isn't there. Right. So that's kind of the thing is you do need these characters and I don't agree with the decision to kill Jason. I think that that was always something that I would not agree with. But the fact that it happened and the fact that they had kind of written themselves in a hole with that character in a lot of ways, something had to give, right? Or he had to be a villain or something. For them, it was easier to kill and then he comes back as a villain. <laughs> but I think that it was such an important thing and it was almost like he needed in some ways to have a wake-up call of some kind with jason because i don't think he would have known when to call it quits with this character but when tim comes in you start to be like oh this is a healthier dynamic just from the get-go almost because Batman is like, I don't want to endanger you. I feel like Jason being someone who was a poor kid, a kid who had a lot of temperament issues, you know, all mm -hmm. of that stuff. It was kind of this thing where Batman, I don't know, I think that he had interesting views on Jason because he wanted to help him, but he also can't understand. If you're the billionaire playboy who went through losing your parents you don't understand what the kid on the sidewalk is dealing with and he learns it he understands it more i'd say because he knows jason 
But I think that he went into the whole thing with Jason in a way that was maybe not advisable. He just didn't know what he was getting into. And here it seems more like he does. You'd think he would have known a little bit more what he was getting in for with Jason just because, I mean... There was warnings, yeah. Well, not just with Jason, but he had been through that almost exact same thing in a Bob Haney story in The Brave and the Bold. Did you ever read that one? I think it's called, like, Punish Not My Evil Son. Oh, I don't think so. Batman adopts another orphan. Oh, no. Back in, like, the (laughs) 60s. And the kid is a no-good shit. He fakes his own kidnapping. He teams up with crooks. And then he figures out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Oh. And he is involved in this crime thing. And then Dick Grayson gets hurt. And so the kid puts on the Robin uniform and then gets murdered. And his name was, like, Lance Bunyan or something. (laughs) I'm getting the last name wrong. sound kind of familiar. But the story ends with he buries the kid out in his backyard and they have a little ceremony. He says, Ed will never forget about him. And so like every time it's like, I watched one kid get buried in that Robin uniform. Like, nope, you watched two. It was two. I'm not going to go through it a third time. Fourth time. Fourth time. (laughs) And this was, you'll never forget. You did. This was... This was uh, the Jason Todd arc in one issue. That's why Uh I didn't even know about that. But I think that the comic isn't very good at explaining the difference. Because it's like, well, losing your parents is universal. It's a big problem. But also, it's different if you have a billion dollars than it is if you don't, right? So Mm -hmm. I just think that the way that the comic treats these issues is always... Well, he went through it and he got better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Jason Todd. And it's, you know, it's just not that easy. And Jason had a lot of issues still, right? While he was going through his time as Robin. I think that his time as Robin is pretty underrated in some ways. He is annoying. But in the beginning, he's not as much. But then they kind of were like, oh, people aren't glomming to the new Robin. Let's make him extra annoying. Kids are annoying. This is probably what they like. Yeah, or somebody who's like, so what? You know, like, all of the time. And it's like, I don't know. I get that his trajectory, you know, we can't do anything about it now. This comic happened in, like, the 80s or whatever. But I also think that there's a lot of commentary with Jason that really just ends up being, but he's just a bad egg or something. And I'm just like, why is the only poor Robin the one who's just a bad egg, right? Or like just the one who doesn't have good upbringing or whatever. Because it's like, you have to be careful about that stuff. I feel like I was a kid who didn't have a great time as a kid. And I had a a huge chip on my shoulder that remains there to this day in many (laughs) ways. But, you know, I'm an okay person. So like I don't know. I just wish that they would dig into it more. But as it stands, they did not in this comic at all. <laughs> so. No, and that was one of the issues that I had. It does come off as they are really playing up the narrative. Well, this is kind of all Jason Todd's fault for sucking at Robin and then dying. I know. And then also Batman never really expresses any contrition for what an asshole he's been the past few issues. It's almost setting up the scenario where everyone else in his life is like, well, he's not acting the way we want him to act, so we need to change our behavior so that he is in a better place. Yeah. And it kind of creates this narrative that's like, well, if I got better grades, maybe dad will stop drinking, you know? I know. 
it's kind of uncomfortable, especially when you're introducing a new kid into this situation. Mm-hmm. Especially since the other adults who are present are very much, this is locked in, cool, I'm on go. You know? Yeah. So it's like, exactly. There isn't uh, much follow up in the beginning, right? So I think, too, that is an issue. Yeah, I agree with you. It leaves it in, a, I, I think, a pretty good place and it will get there, but. I don't know. I, I would have liked to have seen more of an arc for Batman in this rather than the situation around Batman needs to change. So then he'll start acting right. Yeah. I, it, it set it up like it was going to be a story of like Batman kind of descending into madness sort of and then getting a redemptive arc where he realizes the changes he needs to make. And mm-hmm. it didn't really fulfill that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it does send a bad message about Jason. I think that Jason was one of those characters where you're just like, this kid didn't really have a chance, though. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I get that you were upset that he took revenge on this complete scumbag or whatever, you know? Like, I get that to Batman, he was crossing lines. And that's something that you do need to address. He's a teenager, though. And you've given him a lot of power. And... He has a lot of reasons to be angry at the world. So that is stuff where you kind of have to, in some ways, be a little bit more accountable yourself. I just think that as much as I do like Batman, as much as I love Dick Grayson and Alfred, I think that they're all really fun. But there is a way of Jason's story just not ever getting super dealt with. So when Jason comes back, (laughs) you know, and he's like, I'm super mad, it's like, Yeah, that's a goofy story to me. I don't love that. But I also am like, yeah, I'd be pretty mad about it, too, because Jason's like, you didn't take revenge and kill the Joker. And I'm just like, aren't you just mad that they didn't seem to really like you? (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't, right? Like, it's kind of rough. I think it's also got to be extra hard for him, being as he's one of, what, two redheaded characters in comic books who doesn't have any psychic powers? That's gotta be a bummer. He's like, this sucks. All I have is no powers and a father figure who kind of wishes I was either the last or the next Robin. (laughs) Yeah, it's Roy Harper syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. You see, they should have hung out. Like, come on. I I think they could have been a good support group for each other. (laughs) I think that they could have because they both went through a lot of similar problems. So I think that maybe they could have, but Mm -hmm. we'll never see that, right? Oh, and maybe if they were together, then they would develop psychic powers. (laughs) They're like, what did you just say? And he's like, I didn't say anything. And it's like, are you sure? And he's like, well, what did you just say? (laughs) Oh, I didn't say anything. Wait a second. Let's just both not say anything and see if we can still hear what the other person's saying. Mm-hmm. And then there's just a big gasp and a tight focus on their <laughs> We're eyes. We're psychic now. <laughs> What's up? It's me, Jean Grey. I, see, I think we just fixed the whole problem. Poor Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I like suddenly just had a moment of feeling actually really bad for this fictional character. <laughs> Where I'm like, come on. Well, did not give this guy the time of day. It's an occupational hazard of spending way too much time on these comic books. Right. You're like, hey, sometimes I feel like when Batman treats Jason badly, I've been treated badly in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a real Jason Todd. We're going to get my hands on a red hood. So you mentioned Tim having 
really good diplomatic abilities, and that being one of the moments that he shines in this. I couldn't help but think that that conversation that he has, where he convinces Batman of the importance of Robin as a symbol, might have gone totally differently if Dick hadn't been standing right there. Mm -hmm. Like, he's basically saying like, oh, and Robin isn't an important character. And you can almost see Bruce being like, no, fuck Robin. He's no Batman. And then looking over at Dick and being like, shit. Um, (laughs) I guess I'll think about it. Maybe Robin is important. Like, I can't trash this kid right now, but I'm mad that I can't. Well, He's and I, like, that may have been part of his decision-making process. He's like, oh, this kid's pretty smart. He's good at manipulating this situation. Oh, yeah. Maybe there he is really something is. in him. There's also Alfred and Dick just kind of standing there. I think just the idea, too, that he's looking over at them a little bit, but also they're very much like, you can't keep putting us through this. <laughs> like, you need to start changing things. This is our kind of intervention that we're putting out mm-hmm. is him having to be like, oh, I guess I do need a partner of some kind. I do think it would have gone very differently if they both hadn't been just standing there. And I also appreciated that they were standing there because there is a really nice moment where Dick and Alfred just kind of look over at each other and just kind of like smirk at each other about like, <laughs> Yeah, he's he's putting one over on Batman. This is awesome. Yeah, he's like, oh, he'll have a good future as a politician or something. And I was like mm-hmm. cracking up at that too. I thought that that was really fun. This is an interesting issue because it is such a roundup issue. So this is fast paced in a way. I don't think that the other issues really are. And you know, because there is that feeling of oh, we've got to like put some story into the Titans issues mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that. But in this, it moves along at a very steady clip and actually comes to a lot of conclusions really quickly. But we would definitely be remiss if we didn't mention that whenever Tim Drake goes, he finds Two Face, and then Two Face thinks that he's Jason still, mm-hmm. right? So he's just like. I knew you wouldn't die until I kill you. And he picks up a crowbar and goes to hit him with it. And anybody who knows how Jason Todd dies, it was the Joker hitting him with a crowbar a whole bunch of times. And Mm -hmm. the fact that that is called back to in this way, that is pretty honestly scary. Like that's a wild part of this comic. And he hauls back and he's about to you know, just beat him to death, basically. But Tim is able to move out of the way. Alfred helps him. You know, there's a few things that go in his favor. Now, I think that the way that that is played off in this story is, but Tim might just be better at being Robin. But I also think that the fact that the way that Jason goes into that situation, and he is being headstrong, there's something that is very clear in that in the original story when Jason dies, that he's directly bypassing what Batman has told him, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, From what I remember, I might be misremembering, but from what I remember, Jason goes on his own because he's going to bite Joker, right? But then there is the idea with Tim Drake that he would only go in if he was absolutely needed. So in some ways, yes, he is a better Robin. But as we talked about just a second ago, it is really important to kind of draw back as much as you can on victim blaming the kid who got killed by a crowbar, right? From right. a person who is a mass murderer who they've gone up against many, many times. And it's a kid who also had shown signs that he wasn't 
quite mature enough to make the decisions that you needed to make in a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. Tim does show this maturity, but it also is the fact that he's still a kid and somebody just came at him with a crowbar, you know, an adult just came at him with a crowbar. That is terrifying. This is a really scary issue because of that, I think. And also, you do get that the reason that he's able to survive that encounter and he might not have otherwise is because he also has help there. He has a sense of community. He has Alfred who has his back there. And for a second, I knew it wasn't actually going in that direction. But when they are sitting in the Batcave at the beginning of the story and talking about how much there needs to be a Robin and Alfred has the Robin costume on his lap, there was part of me that was like, is Alfred going to put on the costume? It should be you, Alfred. It should be Alfred. <laughs> yeah, it should be Alfred. It's <laughs> just Alfred being like, there's no reason Robin has to be a kid. Yeah, nobody said that. That's not in the contract. But I think, too, that it's really funny that Alfred now is Pennyworth. I was rough and tumble in my youth and like all of this. You know, I was once a young, dashing, handsome spy for the British Army or like whatever mm-hmm. random stuff. And then it just that just shows how hilarious comics are, because in this era... Alfred was just a butler. <laughs> he was a nurse, honestly. Like He makes a comment about that in the story where he goes, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a nurse to you for the rest of your life. I need to draw boundaries. You're my employer. I am <laughs> expectations exceed job requirement discussions at the beginning of my employment. I need to get a huge raise. I would just love it if they split the difference and did a series where it's Batman and Alfred as a Jeeves and Worcester type situation. (laughs) Because I just love the idea of Batman as Bertie Worcester. And I don't think we've gotten that version of Batman, despite the very many Batmans that we've gotten. And having just Jeeves call all of the shots for this kind of dandified fop who's decided he's going to fight crime. I think that would be pretty fun. (laughs) People would riot, but I (laughs) would have a great time. You don't think there's a huge (laughs) P.G. Wodehouse Batman fan contingent that would just be (laughs) over the moon? They'd be like, finally. (laughs) I I mean, I think that I am that person. I think that you are that person. I think that there is a contingent. (laughs) I just don't know the size of the contingent, Mm. I guess. I think we're a silent majority on this. There was also a moment during the Two-Face fight at the end, uh, so the second Two-Face fight, where after Batman basically just snatches a coin out of the air and punches Harvey Dent because, oh shit, the comic needs to end in three pages. Yeah. As they are hauling him away, Batman says, you forgot the one rule. You can't kill Batman and Nightwing. And there is a (laughs) pause for a beat, and Tim Drake as Robin says, and Robin? (laughs) and you don't get to see harvey dent's reaction to that but i couldn't help but imagine him being like oh yeah can can i kill robin (laughs) i'm glad the kid brought this up and then batman very grudgingly is like or robin you can't kill him either he's like oh man not even as a little treat yeah two-face is definitely counting right we know that about him so he's over there being like Nightwing, Batman, that's two. 
there's four people here. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also, as we know from previous issues, a number that I also like. Sometimes yep. I'm obsessed with the number four. I guess I'm into square roots and shit. Yep, anything that's divisible by two, which is most numbers, it turns out. <laughs> right, except for he's also apparently fond of the number three in this, because when he's like, oh, I was really excited about killing two people, but three is even better. I'm like, since when is three even better for you? Since when is three what we're about? Come on, Harvey. You can't be changing the game. <laughs> Where are you going to even find a trifurcated suit? Yeah, your own rule system dictates that you can only kill two of these people. <laughs> Come on, man. Or you could kill 22, or 222, <laughs> or 2,222, <laughs> but you cannot kill just three people. That doesn't work. Gonna have to scare up a whole mess of more Robins. <laughs> oh my god. Well, there is a ton more to talk about in this comic book. Most of what I wanted to bring up, I think, is going to come up in various minutiae segments. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we move over there? No, let's go to minutia. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Sarah, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's see. Best hero, right? We've got that. Yeah, we've got an Aqualad, the greatest of titans, or greatest of superheroes in general, I think it's probably safe to say. And uh, then you get the Beast Boy, the worst of heroes, until Danny fucking Chase showed up. So yeah, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst in this issue? In this issue, I'm gonna say... Tim Drake is my best. I'm going to say Batman is my worst, actually, even though he is pretty cool in this issue. Yeah, it is a very, very small pool. Tight cast here. So when we're looking at just the heroes, I'm going to say Tim Drake, best, 100%. He's the best. He saves the day. He does everything he's supposed to do exactly the right way. Mm -hmm. And Batman... Uh, you made this decision too quick. <laughs> you yeah. brought in a new Robin way too fast. You got pressured by a 13-year-old and you just went with it. And <laughs> I got to say, as much as I like how that works out in the long run, you did not put up a very big fight. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with the choice of Tim Drake. I had Batman as my backup. There were things about Batman's performance specifically in this issue and this arc that bothered me a lot like i don't think adopting a child because it will fix your situation i know he's not adopting tim but it is analogous to that in a lot of ways yeah is really the way to go a while ago we had a friend of the family who was a fucking nightmare and yeah. they decided to have a baby and i remember my dad saying like well i think it'll really help them grow up and oh, being no. like that is not how that shit should work it is also not how it works, like, at all. No. It's like trying to force an unlikely animal friendship. It's like, maybe it'll yeah. work out, but you can't just throw a puppy into the lion den and hope for the best. Yeah. And I kind of feel like that is the route that Batman is taking here. I actually went with Alfred as my worst, though, oh. uh, because he was really manipulating Tim into that situation. <laughs> yeah, he was just tired, and he's like, you know what? 
this kid's gonna cut my workload in half. <laughs> this is why I'm like, this whole thing might be fixed if Alfred just unionized, right? Because <laughs> oh, totally, he would be able to clock out, you know, and Batman would have to hire somebody else, you know, an adult, and it would be fine. <laughs> yeah, as little work-life balance as Batman has, Alfred has it even worse. Yeah, Alfred has none, and he doesn't get any of the glory and everything. There's just a lot of problems with yeah. all of the things Alfred has to deal with. And the fact that he's expected to forever. He cannot leave. That's the thing. There's that scene where Batman goes, what is it? I don't know what I'd do without you. Or I wonder what I'd do without you. And Alfred says, yeah, so do I. And it's like, right, because since this guy was a kid, you've literally been forced to stay by ethics, right? Like, mm -hmm. it would be wrong for Alfred to quit this job, regardless of how toxic or weird it gets. So he's kind of, like, forced to being in the long haul. He already got Tim Draked. Like, he's yeah. already... This happened to him, but he was an adult when it happened. But still, he was in a position where he could not have walked away from Bruce without it being really upsetting you know and hard yeah but even now he's considered to be his employee you know so there's a lot of like line crossing that happens with his relationship with alfred and vice versa where you're kind of like man you two are kind of toxic sometimes <laughs> there is if nothing else definitely a very complicated and probably extremely unhealthy power dynamic going on in their relationship for sure but despite that and despite it being excusable in some ways, uh, yeah, I think Alfred did a pretty bad job in luring Tim into this situation. And then also just letting Two-Face wander away. Yeah, what was that? Like, they didn't even write around it. Tim explicitly says, keep an eye on Two-Face, that's your one job while I'm down here. And Alfred, I guess, went off and had a smoke, which, identifiable, but not <laughs> the best move. While we're discussing various characters who live up to superlatives, who did you have as the president of the drama club in this issue? Which character <laughs> acted or rather overacted in the most dramatic fashion? Two-Face. Yep. <laughs> There's not too much more to say about it, but what really drove it home for me was when he does make the point, ah, three's even better than two. I was like, no, if you're not obsessed with the number two, then what was all of this shit with building an upside down house <laughs> and everything? Come on, man. Yeah, he was being really over the top with this. I think that the setup for Two-Face as being the main villain of this story was pretty good. Mm -hmm. I liked the previous issues where, as I said, they were kind of like, here's him doing this and here's Batman doing his other thing. And like, here's how similar they are and how similarly they think. I enjoy that because I think that Two-Face is really smart. Mm -hmm. I just don't think in the end he behaves very smart in this story. And then I also am just like, you're talking about killing like a child. You're so weird. <laughs> like, yeah. why is that something that, I mean, I get that he's a bad guy, but it's like, why is this something that you're obsessed with? You're like obsessed with killing this like 13 year old. That's weird. It's very like sideshow Bob and Bart, right? <laughs> oh, totally. And, and I feel like they even undercut his effectiveness as a villain just in the last few pages of this comic book, he goes from being a criminal mastermind to, oh, this will be a good starter villain for the kid. <laughs> like, he's yeah. really just a guy with a stick at this point. Then they undercut that even further by having it be like, oh, and also it was the Joker the whole time. 
Yeah. And it's like, I get that it's the Joker, but let Two-Face have a villainy moment to shine. His setup was good, so that's why, right? You're just like, come on. It can't always just be the Joker. It yeah. is nice whenever you have the other villains be scary. I think that Two-Face is terrifying. So you He's know, a district attorney. That right there is terrifying. terrifying. He should be able to get into like arguments with Batman where Batman really just doesn't know what to say. I just wish that people would lean into that more with him because he does have that history. But whenever you see Harvey, he's always, I don't know, Two-Face, I don't think that we should kill Batman. Uh, and then like the other Two-Face is like, ah, we're going to kill him, kill him. We're going to double kill him, triple kill him, three <laughs> times. Three times is the best number of kills. Obviously. Oh, makes me so yeah. angry. I know. And I'm just like, okay, I get that he's been through a lot, but <laughs> Harvey Dent was a district attorney, so he still is a smart guy, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what's always weird to me about how people write him. Because you can't just go the penguin route with him, I don't think. They do all the time where they're just like, he's just an arbitrarily bad person or something. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, he was a district attorney who had his face scarred by somebody who he was prosecuting. But then there's all of this other stuff that we learn as time goes on. So I'm like, he has to be like kind of complicated. Here he is not very complicated. He is very high drama, though. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the story makes him not even, I described him as just like he's just a guy with a stick. He's a guy with a stick who has a 50% chance of just going home at any point. I know, which I love, too. I think that that would be great <laughs> if they started doing that way more in comics, mm -hmm. where Two-Face is halfway through a crime, and then he's like, well, coin says we're done. You Let's know go. what I just thought would be actually a neat idea for Two-Face, and I don't know if this has been done before, but he's still split down the middle, but it's played where his bad side is the district attorney side that is super, mm -hmm. like, law and order, like, fascist, and then his other side is like no no that shit's wrong like I th yeah i think that would be kind of an interesting story if the other side is like actually i have ethical issues with the things that we did while we were a district attorney <laughs> right like maybe you could turn uh world's worst district attorney adrian chase into like a different two-face face, face totally. two or something make him the man bat version of it yeah yeah it's just a character that literally just now in five minutes, we came up with 10 interesting ways to take the character. And he really has just been stuck in the same place for most of his existence. So I think that there's something to be said for that. Because a lot of these villains have progressed over time. But I mm -hmm. don't always think that Two-Face gets that shot. Because their way of progressing him is just to make him a little bit scarier. And like a little mm -hmm. bit murder happy, you know, more than he was before. And it's like, yeah, but we know he's been that since day one. <laughs> Yeah, he he gets played off as, like, Joker light a lot of the time. I uh, know. Doesn't that suck? I think that he's a more interesting villain than we give credit for. But Batman comics are, like, allergic to talking about judicial justice, right? Because, like, literally that comes up a lot in this where it's just like, but the police are so helpful and great. <laughs> like, Tim Drake. And it's like, I can see why the 13-year-old saying that, but, like. <laughs> well, and I can see why the billionaire would be saying that, too. I know, right? <laughs> Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue do you think are worthy of highlighting? Forever Nightwing's costume. I 
just cannot ever get over it. This era was the best era. I love his high collar. I love every part of it. I will never get over it. This is my favorite version of Dick Grayson because I read the Titans a lot growing up, like the Marv Wolfman era of Titans. Mm -hmm. And when he takes on this outfit, he really does become his own man, right? He becomes a person who is, you know, the leader of the Titans. I think that it's such a monumental moment. People now will be like, that costume is ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, but it's here for the girls and the gays, right? Like, we're, I think a lot of people love this costume and I love this costume. George Perez is the one who designed it, right? And also was a co plotter on this, right? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, like RIP. But there's definitely this really cool element to it, shows him so much as a circus performer, right? And I think that. That's what's so cool about this costume is it's very much him feeling himself being like, I'm the evil Knievel. I have my cool outfit that nobody else would ever wear, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. just such a Nightwing specific of this specific era. (laughs) Like, later on, they give him the costume that's so iconic, you know, that he had in his solo series and all of that. And, you know, that's fine. He still has that costume. There won't be any major changes to that costume, I don't think. But I love this costume. I think that this is my favorite one. I do, too. I am a big fan of I love the scoop neck. I love the super high collar. I love that it is character building in that it is like, yeah, here's my background. I grew up in the circus. I like having a spotlight on me, but I'm also going to acknowledge that I do owe a debt to Batman. So I'll put like his influence into the color scheme and stuff. I think it's a really well-designed, really cool costume. And it's kind of goofy looking in a really fun way. And I think also functional in that he's a crime fighter. He probably gets injured a lot. And uh, he's very limber. So you do need to have a cone to keep him from just licking himself constantly. (laughs) So I I agree. I think it's a great costume. Yeah, you know what? I had never even thought of that. But guess what? Now I have extra depth to this costume and why it's the best. But it's true, too. As you say, he's a circus performer. That's what I love about Dick Grayson. He is the guy who is coming in, smiling, dashingly beautiful, always has a quip or whatever. And I just think that this is the costume for that. Like the one that he has now makes him look like cool guy but this was the one where i was like that's the circus performer and this is truly when we start to see his personality be so definitive that you would never think of him as being batman sidekick ever again right Mm -hmm. yeah this is a guy who i mean you can't see batman looking in the mirror before he goes out to fight crime and saying showtime but you can totally (laughs) see dick grayson doing that yeah And it's something where you go, he loves what he does. Batman, you know, doesn't love easily anything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's something where there was that episode of the animated series where Batman is talking to Dick and Dick is like, well, there's no difference between us. And he's like, yeah, there is because it's too late for me. And I always think about that scene because Batman does not like being Batman. He will always be Batman, though. There's no way for him to have this happy ending i don't think whereas with dick grayson he does what he loves to do day after day and i think that there's just something really interesting about that dynamic oh absolutely yeah batman does this because he needs to dick grayson does it because he wants to and likes to yeah
let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. Were you able to find any band names in the text of this issue? I'm scanning right now. What I Do Is Dangerous is a pretty good title Ooh. for an album, I gotta say. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I don't know if that would be a band name, but What I Do Is good Dangerous album, is for... Yeah, absolutely. Well, that could maybe be an album by Krang with two N's. There is a Ooh, band Krang. named Krang with one N, but I think Krang, I don't know. I can see them being maybe reminiscent of the band Slade from the 70s, like just like... <laughs> Straight ahead, kind of dumb, very swaggering hard rock. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. And their hit song, What I Do is Dangerous. There is a moment where Alfred points out a coal chute, and I think that coal chute might be a pretty good <laughs> I thought name. about coal chute, too. I ended up going with heated by coal instead. Yes, nice. But you could it'd be coal chute, and then their album could be heated by coal. I don't know. So if, if it comes down to Krang or Coal Shoot, which one do you think is the better band name? Krang. Okay. <laughs> I will circle it and it will go on the Twitter poll. Yeah. Excellent. In terms of the Bozone, what character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you think did the best job? What was the best insult in this issue? You know what's rough is that it's kind of hard to have fun with Two-Face's insults. Because he is, A, not on his game too good right now whenever it comes to that. But he also is definitely trying to kill a child. So right. the whole time you're kind of like... Hard to credit that as a good zinger when you're trying to murder a child. Yeah, he's all lost your sense of humor, but he has a crowbar in his hand. So yeah. <laughs> you're just like, that could be good, but it's not. I like the line where Alfred is like, there's been enough death and he comes after Two-Face. I think it's pretty good, but it's not really an insult. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because Tim Drake doesn't really have any good insults. He's basically, I'm here to help. Yeah, I think they're trying really hard at this point to still separate him from Jason Todd. So they're like, no, he doesn't crack wise while he's fighting. So he doesn't get any in. And Batman, in this era at least, isn't really much for the one-liners. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you get a couple of people calling people fools. You get a couple of descriptions of Tim Drake as a brat. I guess I'll go with one of the fools because I like it when villains use the word fool, but it's a little underwhelming as a selection. I do like whenever Two-Face flips the coin up in the air and Batman catches it because Harvey's like, my coin will determine your fate. And it goes like flipping through the air. Batman catches it and goes, no, Harvey, it's your mistake. <laughs> and just punches him in the face, which I think, eh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Although really, it's the punch in the face that's doing the heavy lifting and making that zinger really hit home. Truly. But you know what? I'm down with that. I think Batman punching him in the face is the best insult in this comic. <laughs> what a bozo. Were you able to find any timestamps in this issue? Was there anything in this comic book that definitely let you know that it came out in the year 1989? Alfred. <laughs> Alfred not being a former sexy British spy who was 
not just a ladies man not just a brilliant code cracker not just you know thomas wayne's best friend not just the greatest butler who's ever lived but <laughs> the world's yeah, greatest this, telepath too <laughs> yeah yeah the fact that he's just a regular butler i guess and mm. dropping kids off at the super villain fight <laughs> i just think that that made me be like yep this is before a whole lot of other stuff happened totally it definitely is yeah also in the back of this comic i don't know if were you reading a floppy or a digital copy or digital did it have the letters column or the back material in it or no? No, they usually don't. It's such a bummer. Ah, uh, well, in the back of this, they have a special frequently asked bat question segment that mm. is introduced at this point because the Batman movie had just come out and was super no. popular. And so there were a ton of new Batman readers. And so they're just like, okay, we've gotten a lot of the same questions about this. And no, you can't buy things from us through the letters column. <laughs> like you won't be able to find Batman t-shirts there. Cause there was like a shortage of them. Cause they were everywhere and the like hottest item. But like, yeah, there are like 10 or 12 questions that are written to the editor where he's like, look, we get these all the time. If you want to get back issues, here's how you do it. If you want to get merchandise, here's how you do it. Here's who Jason Todd was. Here's why Dick Grayson isn't Robin. And I thought that was actually really interesting just to be like, oh, shit, that's right. That Batman movie was a huge phenomena and really did bring a lot of people into comics at that point. Right, because at that time, the last time Batman was a big cultural thing was the 66 show which i definitely love mm -hmm. but there's no comparison right between i mean there is they do still do like a lot of campy things in 89 and all yeah. of that but the fact that it's like this is grown-up batman i think and this is you know 1989 batman i think definitely would have been a game changer for people who are used to like come along chum and <laughs> holy hole in a donut batman and all of that which I did also love. But yeah, it must yeah. have been confusing for readers if they were just expecting the Batman from the Tim Burton movie to show up in this comic book, or if they were expecting the Adam West Batman to totally. show up in this comic to see, oh, no, it's this guy who isn't quite either of those. Yeah, totally. I recently rewatched the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Mm -hmm. I liked them a lot more than I was expecting to. For sure. I remembered them being really bad and mm -hmm. watching them again. I had kind of the realization that like, oh, Joel Schumacher is doing the Batman 66 TV show, yep. but in the 90s and using 90s like it is as 90s as the Batman 66 was the 60s. And yep. I really enjoyed them both. I don't mind them at all. I think that both of them have incredible set design, especially mm -hmm. Batman and Robin, which is notably considered the worst Batman movie. And George Clooney is considered the worst Batman, but if you watch it, he's 100% Adam West. That's what he's doing. Yeah. It's very clear that he is rolling on that vibe. And very likely there was conversations, I'm guessing, behind the scenes that were about, hey, yeah, this is the Batman we're going with. Val Kilmer, I would say, almost is like the worst Batman if I had to choose, because mm -hmm. I think that he's playing it really as straight as he can in many ways. Right. But yeah, 
you have Adam West take off 100%. And George Clooney is the guy to totally nail it because he's such an Adam West type. So I think that that works. I love the set design. I will always go to bat for Uma Thurman Ivy, even though it is one of the most across the board weird performances ever because yes. it's like her accent really comes and goes. <laughs> they, it's so inconsistent. They make her take these really weird turns, but there's also all of these moments where you're like, she's awesome. And that's the thing with Poison Ivy, truly one of my favorite characters of all time is that she's always been written by people, not so much these days, but for the longest time, she was written by people who maybe just didn't quite know what to do with her. And you start to be like, you're taking these easy kind of misogynistic ways out with her. Mm -hmm. But if you just stuck to your own premise of this character, like she's the best character in the movie. She's really fun, super compelling. I love her. I think that she was so fun. Yeah, it is. I started to say weird and then I was starting to say bizarre. And really, it's not even surprising, but it is unfortunate that there are so many, I feel like, characters that start off with a strong premise, especially female characters that then get written around to the point where they are yeah. bad. Like, yeah. like you have to jump through her, yeah. so many hoops to make this a sexist character. And then you just kept doing it because you're like well i need to get to this end point i need to be able to be dismissive and reductive of this character it's like ah oh, you were so close yeah even in the opening sequences with her she has her work stolen she's harassed because of her gender she is treated really badly she's an environmentalist who tries to get bruce wayne to care about that which is mm -hmm. impossible and <laughs> yeah the whole thing is them just kind of deciding that she's just an eco-terrorist before anything else happens. And yeah, she's definitely kind of like an eco-terrorist, right? But the thing is, is with Poison Ivy, they never try to compromise with her. And that's why she's probably coming at you with these completely outlandish things, because her goal is environmentalism. So the fact that you will always shut her down if she's like, could you not build a parking lot on top of this marshland? Like, that is something that even in the animated series, like, every time she pops up, they do stuff like that with her. So, yeah, I agree. This is not a Poison Ivy podcast. It easily <laughs> could be. I am ready to talk about it anytime. But I also just think that that is a major failing, not of the movie, but of the Batman comics and the Batman story overall. Because people really, even to this day, struggle with that character. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is fucking ridiculous in that movie, too. It's so funny. It's so weird that they're like, okay, so we have one character who is a brilliant scientist and one character who is a hulking strongman. Arnold Schwarzenegger will play the scientist. Um, you, know, you know Bane's right over there in the corner. <laughs> Chill out. I just think it's so funny. Um. We're getting the slightest bit off topic here. Though. We love those movies, you know? It's like love might be a strong word, but this is yeah. like a fun thing to talk about. Most people who read this comic book will probably not love Batman and Robin. And I think that marrying all of the different Batmans is what's fun mm -hmm. about Batman. <laughs> Trying to get them all together in a room is what I like. Uh -huh. And I think that that's some of the most successful runs have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in incorporate, like, no, that this is a side of him. I think one of my favorite bits that was like a Batman line of dialogue was in the Darwin Cook New Frontiers, where oh, yeah. you see the transition from 
the golden age Batman to the silver age Batman. And he's like, yeah, I realized that I was terrifying the people that I'm trying to protect. I want to scare criminals, not children. And I was like, mm -hmm. that is so, it makes the silver age Batman not quite make sense because those stories will never make sense, which is what's great about them. But it does yeah. incorporate those two sides of the character in a really smart way. Yeah, a hundred percent. Let's talk about the art in this issue. Yeah. What was your favorite panel? And what did you think of the art in general? This is Jim Aparo. Yeah. So Jim Aparo is a really good artist. I love this guy. He does the first whole bunch of issues of Batman and the Outsiders. And he's on Batman for a minute, too. So if you like the art in this, he does a whole bunch of other Batman that I think maybe you would like as well. Because mm -hmm. he's a really good artist. It's not necessarily like Neil Adams-ish, but he does have that sort of style, right? Where it's kind of leaning into this... Like a more realistic kind of art style, I think, than what we've seen for a long time. But mm -hmm. when he exaggerates, he does it to good effect, too. So I always enjoy his work. I think that he's a really good artist. And in this, he's batting a thousand. Like, he's doing great. And then I would say my favorite panel is the panel when Tim Drake comes up and he is looking up at Batman. And Batman is a silhouette. And Tim Drake, of course, is wearing his brightly lit Robin outfit. So the contrast between Robin and Batman through this entire scene where Robin is very brightly lit, you know, like you can see him as this hopeful, optimistic character. Batman is completely entrenched in shadows. So the visual dynamic is just really good on that to begin with. And Tim Drake has his back mostly to the audience and is saying, you need someone to make you slow down just a bit and wonder what could happen. I mean, how many times have you been hurt in these past months? And it's just like, we have been covering that, right? About how Batman has been on the edge and all of this. Mm -hmm. I feel like that particular panel is really good at communicating what the whole central issue of this whole storyline is. You see them kind of facing off against each other. Batman is trying to ignore him, is trying to put him off to the side, is trying not to listen to him. And you see Tim in a way that definitely belies his age. He walks up, has his hand up and is kind of like pointing at Batman. Like, you need to listen to what I'm saying to you right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just a beautiful panel. It's also that same page continues to be really good because the one we were talking about with Nightwing with his like that little smirk over at mm -hmm. Alfred while they're watching, that's like the next panel. So honestly, this whole page, I think, is maybe my favorite page in the comic. It's really, really good. It is a visually striking image. And like you said, it also does a ton of storytelling for the issue and really ties together a lot of the themes. And yeah, it is followed by, I think, probably my favorite panel, which is Dick doing this smirking like, eh, check out this guy. Here he goes again thing to Alfred, <laughs> which it, it is really fun to watch both him and Alfred enjoy Batman being kind of reprimanded by this kid. It's, yeah. it's really fun. I also, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the cover of this comic book. It mm. is by mm -hmm. George Perez and it is fucking gorgeous. It is Tim Drake as Robin swinging in on a line over the bat signal and his cape is incorporated almost into the bat signal and like covering yep. up parts of it with the yellow and it's just really really visually arresting 
Yeah, Once again, it's, it's George Perez, and he just, all of the covers of this series are yeah. so good. Each one of them could be a poster. The weird thing about it for me is, it's certainly not the cover design's fault, but it is unintentionally, I think, ironic that this is the era when DC was putting the legend DC comics aren't just for kids on the cover of every comic. So if you yeah. get the direct like the direct sales edition, the newsstands ones have a little barcode there, but it is as part of the bat signal right under Robin, right as they are introducing a kid character into this comic specifically to be a point of view character for kids. It says DC comics aren't for kids. It's like <laughs> really all over the map here. They tend to be with their messaging, right? That's kind of the thing with DC sometimes where I'm like, if you could just decide to do your own thing sometimes, because I feel like you'll see DC chasing Marvel sometimes mm -hmm. and you're just like, you're the ones who have Superman. Why are you right. doing that? Like, it's just so weird. Yeah. You don't need to give Superman feet of clay. Yeah. But yeah, it is just a, a gorgeous cover. And like, there are so many little details, like all of the bats fluttering around at the yeah. top of it over the logo and the smaller silhouettes of Batman, Alfred and Robin. The silhouette of Alfred that shows his little tuxedo uniform, it makes him seem like an icon in a way that he really hasn't been portrayed. And I think that's really fun. It's just a cool cover. I, I love George Perez. Yeah, all of the covers, as you said, they've all been just absolutely beautiful and poster-worthy. Well, Sarah, I have just one further question I have to ask you. In the relatively arbitrarily decided at this point, Year of Our Lord 1990 and the Month of Our Lord November, what's Aqualad probably up to? You know what? I think that Aqualad is just mm. vibing. Yeah, you are absolutely right. That was, that was what I had, too. Great answer. <laughs> he doesn't take enough time to do that, and so I'm glad he's able to just, you know, really just vibe for a while. Yeah, if you ever chill on the beach or in the water, just kind of soaking up some sun, that's what I think. Nice. Good for him. He deserves it. Oh, he does, doesn't he? I mean, come on. He's canonically the greatest superhero of all time. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time talking with you about this comic book and everything else. You were a delightful guest. If people would like to find more of your work, and I would like to be explicit here, they should find more of your work. <laughs> how would they go about doing that? Yeah, I want to say that I love being on this podcast. So anytime, hit me up. I have enjoyed it a whole bunch. It's been too long. But then, of course, I also love to just kick back and listen to all of the adventures of the Defenders and the Titans, because those are, have got to be, as you have covered very much in this series, two of the wildest comics I've ever read. So I'm glad that somebody has found that and has been kind of helping me go back through it with a different perspective. But I also think that if you want to find me, the best way to do it is going to be through the Bitches on Comics podcast. That's where you can hear my voice much as you have done for the last 90 minutes or so. And I think that if you would like to go further, then there is the Decoded Pride speculative fiction anthology that we do that is all queer creators. We do it every June so far for the last three years. We're going right into the third year right now. 
I'm looking at my calendar with kind of a terrified glint in my eye because I still have a ton of work to do before it goes up on June 1st. But if you like queer speculative fiction and you like PDFs because you have to read it online, but other than that, those are the only situation. It's 15 bucks usually. There's a bunch of promo codes all of the time. So if you're broke, then just wait. (laughs) We'll give you a deal at some point. And I... Highly recommend it because not only, of course, I'm one of the curators along with the other editors, who is uh, Monica Estrella Negra and Essie Flinor, who are my hosts, my co-hosts at Bitches on Comics. We choose these stories and there's always 30 of them and we always end up having to turn down a ton of them that we wish that we could print because there's just so many incredible queer stories so i highly recommend people of all walks of life to give it a check through because the first two issues are available the third issue is coming out right as we speak pretty much and it just helps us a lot if you do pre-orders or buy the back issues or whatever because you know we pay everybody in all of this but it's just something that we've really committed to so you could go bitchesoncomics.com decodedpride.com and then maybe follow me on Twitter. It's at Sarah Century. There's no H in Sarah or Century. <laughs> I stole that joke from John Wilson, who is a podcaster as well. <laughs> but I'm just going to stick with it forever. But every time I'm just like, ha I took that. <laughs> Stolen. I believe it was Mark Twain who said, uh, mature artists steal, immature artists poop in their pants like little babies and say, yeah. look at the poop in my diaper. Wah, I'm an immature artist. <laughs> yeah, I'm not one of those. No. I'm the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely recommend that you check out Sarah wherever you can. Bitches on Comics is a great podcast that I love to listen to. And also check out the rest of her writing. What I did recently, I had to do a project where I talked about the invisible woman. And so I just Googled Sarah Century Sue Storm and like five articles getting Sarah's (laughs) thoughts on Sue Storm came up. And I just took those and pretended they were mine. Yes, good. Because that was a character that I struggled with in the beginning. And then was I now am willing to always go to bat for her. So. I'm glad that other people read that. I also have done, yeah, so much writing about comic books, <laughs> like so much. So if, if there's any character you want to know, know more about and specifically know what Sarah thinks about, then I would recommend just doing a quick Google search. It is worth your while. Usually it's underappreciated female characters of Marvel and DC is truly just my A+, but also sometimes Vampirella. So, you know, not even regulated to Marvel and DC. Excellent. Um, If you would like to get into touch with me and Corey, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or as this is the future, we can be reached electronically, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I'm also sometimes up on the social media, sometimes less so, sometimes more so. Depends on whether I'm trying to write something else. But you can probably find me there. And if you can't find me there, Well, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. I'll be in there. I always have been. And you know what? Sarah's in there, too. Sarah, what are you doing in people's hearts this week? Kicking it. Vibing. Nice. Aqualad style. (laughs) Me and Aqualad vibing.
getting some sun. It's summertime, everybody, kind of. Sounds good. I'm going to be waiting anxiously for the next George Kennedy novel to arrive in the mail. (laughs) I've been reading novels by veteran character actor George Kennedy, who wrote some mystery novels where he solves crimes on the sets of movies. What? He wrote two of them. I finished the first one, and the second one is coming in the mail. It is not great, but it is very interesting. Way too many people die in this book. It is a cozy murder, (laughs) but eight people die on the set of this movie, and they just keep filming. (laughs) And then at the end, George Kennedy has to take over as director because one of the people that got murdered was the director, and he does a great (laughs) job, and the movie wins all the Oscars. Oh, dang. This is amazing. George Kennedy was never allowed to direct a movie. It's like he doesn't have any directing credits, but I love that he just (laughs) tossed out there, look, I am available to direct, and I'll probably win all the Oscars. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a little thing called the Academy Awards, but I'm pretty much a shoe-in. So So if you'd like your movie (laughs) to do that, I'm not going to lie, there are probably going to be some murders on set. (laughs) Maybe eight or so. Eight in the first one. I don't know how many people are murdered in the second one. I'm so excited. This is so weird. You really should check it out. Uh, The first one is Murder on Location. The second one is Murder (laughs) on High. Dean Martin and Raquel Welsh have cameos in the books. There, There is one point where Clint Eastwood comes up to a table where George Kennedy is eating and is like, will you please be in my next movie? You're the best bad guy I've ever worked with. It's terrific. Wow. I have never heard of this. This sounds so good. You should check them out. I think both books came out in 1983. That's the year I was born. There we go. It's like it was meant to be. Yeah. If you would like to support the show financially, you can check us out at patreon.com. There's a bunch of stuff that's up there, including the monthly Howard the Duck podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full Mm. name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck show I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And we are through all of the Steve Gerber issues and working into the two Bill Mantlo appearances before we figure out what the heck we're going to read next. So now would be a great time to jump on and check all that stuff out if you've been waiting. Also, it makes it possible for me to keep doing the show and uh, pay my mortgage, which I very much appreciate. So thank you for your generosity in that regard. If you'd like to support the show in a non-financial way, uh, leave us a review. Just uh, click on all the things that you need to click and uh, give us all of the stars that there are and say, um, the skies were dark because all the stars are in this review for (laughs) Tighten Up the Defense or in George Kennedy's Murder Mystery Book. This is the greatest podcast I have ever listened to. Five stars, but if I could, I would give it 5,000 stars. That's the kind of review we're looking for. Yeah, so leave one of those there and then go over to Bitches on Comics and leave them the same (laughs) review. I know (laughs) superlatives don't generally work that way, but you know what? Superlatives do what we tell them to do. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. Sarah, thanks again so much for joining us. I had a great time. I had such a great time that I apparently just forgot that I wasn't the queen and started using the royal we. <laughs> but uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.
Minutia. Yeah, I know this song. It's like Corey still gets head. very upset that there is a reference to him eating farts in the song. And Can never... you imagine every episode? He's just kind of like... <laughs> He, I, I feel very bad for him. Every time I say thanks, Rick, when we come out of the song, <laughs> Corey just sits there with his arms crossed silently. <laughs> and yeah, he's my brother, Rick. so it never stops being funny to me. Yeah, no, I have siblings. I have two younger brothers. And yes, you drag them for truly the rest of your life. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> 